AI and discrimination. Hello and welcome to this 39 Essex podcast, part of the AI and Law podcast series. I'm Catherine Apps, one of the silks here at 39 Essex Chambers. Today, I'm joined by Catherine Barnard, a Professor of European and Employment Law from Trinity College, Cambridge, and an Associate Member of 39 Essex Chambers. Catherine is one of the country's foremost experts in equality law and EU law, both at the EU level and also how European treaties and legal developments since Brexit will impact on the United Kingdom. Catherine also taught me EU law and employment and discrimination law when I was actually her student many, many moons ago at Cambridge. So Catherine's really the reason I'm able to do much of the work that I do today in those fields. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. There's been so much talk about the use of computer algorithms and AI and biases, but just a little bit less on how discrimination claims are likely to actually be formulated and how they can actually be brought. Now, how do you think that AI can cause discrimination in the legal sense? Well, let's just have a think about some of the situations where AI raises potential issues. As you know, the law prohibits discrimination on the nine protected characteristics, including sex, race, sexual orientation. Now, let's just have a think about how AI decision-making might impact upon that. So let's have a couple of examples. Facial recognition software. There's some evidence that facial recognition software is easier on white skins and black skins. They find it easier to distinguish facial characteristics of people who are white rather than those who are black. Now, at a very basic level, some low-cost airlines require you to prove your identity and you use the AI software to do that. And of course, if the AI software doesn't detect a black skin, then they would have to go and pay for their boarding pass to get on the flight. Now, that's not so serious. It's £50, but it's an extra cost. But it becomes much more serious if you're thinking about facial recognition software in the criminal field. And in the criminal field, if the facial recognition software doesn't so easily distinguish between different black faces, then the risk is you end up arresting the wrong person. So that's one example. Give me another example where decision-making based on AI becomes an issue. So I've been doing a lot of work on the EU settlement scheme. And one of the things that the government's very proud of is it's an online scheme and you can get a decision whether you're entitled to stay as an EU national within a matter of minutes. Well, you can if you have a mobile phone, a smartphone, and also you've got a regular footprint of employment and the AI decision maker calls upon your employment records, your HMRC records, and can make a decision on that basis. But... If you do not have a regular employment pattern, and that may well be the case for those from low-income backgrounds who are doing work in the farms and the fields, then you may well find that there's discrimination against certain groups. And remember, within the group of those applying for EU settlement scheme, the EU settled status, that includes people from ethnic minority backgrounds. So you begin to see how AI can have an impact. Give you just one further example You see it in the field of money lending or mortgages. If a mortgage company uses AI to make decisions and they prioritise those who are married and they get higher scoring over those who are not married, this may well discriminate against people on the grounds of sexual orientation who may not have entered a marriage, but they may be in a civil partnership. 
So you begin to see how AI decision-making can interact with discrimination law. Taking it back to brass tacks and how the Equality Act works itself, discrimination is only unlawful if it's in the various regulated spheres, including use in public functions, services, employment, education. And I think I agree with you that we're likely to see the use of AI and algorithms across all of those fields. How exactly that can be shown to be unlawful might differ across those different areas. But just looking a little bit closer into the terminology, you mentioned the EU settlement scheme and the use of computer decision-making. Computers, of course, can be programmed by humans to make decisions based on sort of clear programming and characteristics. If this is shown, answer yes. If this is shown, answer no. But I suppose the thing about AI is that it will be making decisions based on information that is not known to a human programmer and will be doing pattern recognition, as you say, based on a set that it's learnt from. Is there a greater risk in that context than there is from pure computer decision-making in terms of knowing what comes in and then what comes out? Yes, absolutely. And I think what you're seeing is that as the algorithm learns, then there is less human control over the output. And so there are different elements of discrimination. And then that raises the question, the Equality Act, as you rightly say, Equality Act 2010, a quite radical piece of legislation of its time, but largely based on much earlier legislation, notably the Sex Discrimination Act of 1975 and the Race Relations Act of 1976. Now, of course, these bits of legislation were drafted when it was about human decision makers, not about machine decision makers. And then that raises the interesting question, to what extent can an employer or a service provider, a bank or an airline, be held liable for what their algorithm is doing? Indeed, and we're going to sort of get into the sort of technicality of it in a bit. But I suppose we do have a little bit of a model of a case which was about decision-making based on differential data between men and women. And that was the challenge that went to the European Court of Justice about car insurance, where women's car insurance was cheaper than men's car insurance. And that was found to be unlawful. Does that help us in terms of having a sort of legal template for knowing the way that the courts would actually approach an AI decision-making template in the same way? Yes. So I think you're talking about the rather interesting decision of Testa Shah where, in fact, women got actually more favourable treatment because they were seen to be safer drivers than male drivers were, particularly young male drivers. And so it does give you some indication of how the courts might go, that they look at data and they see that these agglomerated data sets may produce the outcome that male drivers are less safe than young female drivers. On the other hand, there is a risk of a negative feedback loop that if the data that's been collected, a lot of effort has been put into collecting data on young men or young male drivers, then it's likely that you will find that more male drivers are involved in accidents than female drivers. So that there is this risk of how the data is being used. But we see the court looking at behind the data and saying, yep, absolutely, this data is discriminatory against men. And there's another case which is really interesting that we should perhaps just dwell on for a moment. And that's a decision in Chez. And I probably recall that was the one about electricity meters. And in the case of electricity meters in Bulgaria, in areas occupied largely by Roma communities, electricity meters were put very high up, seven, eight meters up. The normal height for an electricity meter is about one meter, 71 meter, 80, so eye height. So you can check 
how much electricity you're using. And the argument was, well, Roma are more likely to tamper with the meters, and that's why the meters are put up so high. Now, actually, the complainant in that case was not a woman who was Roma. She was not Roma, but she was associating with Roma, and she was found to have suffered from associative discrimination, so direct discrimination, on the basis of these assumptions based on, in that case, what turned out to be rather inaccurate data. It's a really interesting example of somebody who wasn't actually within the protected class itself actually having a viable claim. Going now back to the sort of brass tacks again of the Equality Act in terms of what types of discrimination are unlawful, and we've already touched on some of them. But in this session, if we just focus mainly on direct and indirect discrimination, there is obviously the additional form of discrimination for disabled people, which is the duty to make reasonable adjustments. We're not going to talk about that one too much today, although I've actually got a case at the moment in computer systems allegedly failing to make reasonable adjustments for disabled people, which potentially does have read across into this context. But just so that we're taking our listeners with us, can you just explain in really simple terms what is direct discrimination, what is indirect discrimination, and why does the difference matter? Direct discrimination is simply put less favourable treatment on the grounds of the protected characteristic. So the example of that would be a man being offered a job simply because he is a man. So it's tends to be quite overt and you can see it up front that direct discriminations occurred. Indirect discrimination tends to try to focus on covert activity. So it's a rule which on its face applies to everybody, but in fact disadvantages a particular group. And to give a very simple example, if you had a height requirement that a job to be a firefighter or a police officer, you've got to be one metre 80 tall. Now, that requirement applies to everyone who applies, but in fact has a disparate impact on women and also those from certain ethnic minority groups. Now, the reason why there are two different types of discrimination, in part it's historical because this is the approach that the US equality legislation adopted and one we have incorporated into our law, but also they are focusing on different matters. Direct discrimination looks at the reasons why people are being treated differently, whereas indirect discrimination focuses on the effects of the measure. Is the effect of the requirement to be one metre 80 tall, does that have a disparate impact on particular groups? Now, the other reason why we draw a distinction between the two is that the defences are different. In the case of direct discrimination, the defence is very narrow. It goes by the not terribly helpful acronym of OR, Occupational Requirements, is there an extraordinarily good reason why the direct discrimination is occurring? Whereas indirect discrimination can be saved by what is referred to as objective justification. That's usually the shorthand that's used. In fact, the legal test is it a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So you ask two questions. Is there a legitimate aim for the policy? And if there is, are the steps taken proportionate? Now, the courts have set the bar relatively high even for objective justification, but it's certainly the case that it is easier for employers or service providers to justify indirect discrimination than direct discrimination. Well, I think that's really helpful because there's a lot of the discussion is about using the language of direct discrimination in the context of AI, but unless the computer programmer is actually deciding to program itself to make a difference based on the protected characteristic. And I can see how this might possibly happen maybe in colour discrimination, so part of race discrimination, but otherwise relatively unlikely to occur. 
But what's much more likely to occur is a form of indirect discrimination where you have a criterion being used or a data set being used for training, which if used and used as the paradigm, it is more likely to make a decision that's adverse to people who share a particular protected characteristic than those who don't. Would you say that would be a fairer summary? I think that's absolutely right. So just go back to some of the examples that we looked at at the beginning, that you could certainly see that if you had a rule that if you lived in a certain area, it's harder to get a mortgage, then you could say, well, that will have a disparate impact on those from a particular racial group, perhaps. And therefore, the bank will have to objectively justify that criteria. So in terms of indirect discrimination, one of the key things that courts require is for the claimant to define what they call the PCP. So the provision criterion or practice, the thing it is, that they say gives rise to the substantial disadvantage to the group with protected characteristics. And in the AI world, it'll be very difficult for a claimant to know what criteria or what provisions are actually being used within a closed box AI system. What is actually the reason for the decision that's being made? Do you see that as a problem that's potentially surmountable in terms of defining the PCP more broadly as the system as a whole? Or how do you see that working? I think you raise a very good point. And of course, there's so little litigation on this that at the moment we are in pretty much virgin territory. Now, of course, in the early days of discrimination law, the language was not PCP, but it was a requirement or a condition. And that was felt to be too strict. So PCP, provision, criteria or practice, was introduced to try and lower the bar. And so One answer to your question is, remembering the origins of PCP, it should be easier for claimants to at least say, look, it's quite difficult to identify precisely what the PCP is, but these are possible alternatives. Another way of looking at this is to say that, certainly in the EU field, what you're beginning to see is requirements on providers in certain contexts to be more transparent about how they are using data and where they're getting the data from. And if I can just digress for a moment, there is a new directive going through the European legislative mechanism on platform work. And in respect to the platform work directive, assuming it gets passed, it's now gone to the trilogue stage where the council and the European parliament try and hammer it out. The underpinning idea is much greater transparency also human review of decision-making and also remedies, what I refer to as TAR, transparency, accountability and remedies. And that underpins the platform work directive. Now, just to be clear, the directive applies to those who are working in the EU, but it will also extend to any platforms that are based in the UK but provide services into the EU. And so what you may see is whether it's under this directive or whether it's under the Digital Services Act, which is also underpinned by TAR criteria, that there is a greater emphasis on transparency in order to address this black box issue that you raise. One of the other interesting things I found about that directive is the article that provides for mandatory human review of what it calls significant decisions. Now, in discrimination law, from a defendant's perspective, there's two big defences that are potentially in play in indirect discrimination claims. 
sort of three if you include the alleged PCP is not our real PCP. But the two ones that are mainly used are objective justification. So is the system as a whole a proportionate means or is the PCP a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim in considering the system as a whole? And also what they sometimes call the all reasonable steps defence, that an employer or the principal contractor isn't liable for discrimination of somebody else. I, in reality, it's going to be a third party who's actually writing the, the coding rather than most service providers won't have the technical expertise to actually write this stuff if they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent discrimination. So just taking those two in turn with objective justification first, is human review after a decision has been taken going to be enough to redress indirect discrimination in the initial analysis by the computer system? It's maybe that the human review itself becomes discriminatory or tainted by discriminatory because if the human review just says, well, we've looked at our data and our data tells us this and therefore the decision is upheld, you then discover that human review itself may be indirectly or possibly even directly discriminatory. But even if the human review says, well, actually, we recognise there is an issue with the data because the data itself is contaminated with discrimination, therefore we're going to reverse the decision. And then that is in itself further overturned at a higher level. It already weakens the employer's object justification defence. Yes, I suppose it becomes a sort of human review that has to be so intense that you're actually putting more work in than the computer did in the first place. So the sort of time saving of using a computer is lost if you have to be really intense. But then you also have the issue of if a computer sort of presents and something like one of the large language models presents things in a, what looks like a very persuasive manner, the language is always perfect, no typos, beautiful reasoning, that a human is unlikely to gainsay something that is so clearly and well presented in those terms. But I expect that will be the golden bullet that a lot of users of this technology will hope to be able to engage in order to show the safety of this process. And it looks as though the EU legislature is actually hard baking that into the law. Turning now then to the all reasonable steps defence, I don't know what you think about my sort of assumption that most companies and service providers or those providing public functions are unlikely to be the people actually coming up with this technology in the first place. And what can they actually realistically do to lower their exposure to discrimination liability if the discrimination is down to essentially to the contractor's control or lack of control over the computer decision maker? Part of the problem, of course, will be that while the third party will be doing the coding, the data that they're using will, of course, usually be provided by the employer because by definition it's the employer that's got the data in the first place. And it would be harder to say, well, it's the third party's fault because the third party is only operating on the data that's being provided. And if the data, and more to the point, the collection of that data is contaminated by discrimination, it's going to be harder for an employer to run the argument that it's they, the employer, have taken all reasonably practical steps and it's the third party company that actually caused the discrimination. Yes, I suppose I can see how in the employment context it could be easier to contain in a way if it's AI and algorithmic decision making used for employee performance, which is what the platform directive is about. But sort of zoning out a little bit more broadly to services and public functions more generally I suppose the usual model in those areas is essentially a big pattern recognition model where the AI that's being written at the moment often self-selects 
gets its own data set from publicly accessible sources. So the source is all of the internet full stop. And if a computer can look at all of the internet full stop, then there's no issue of the defendant to the litigation having control over the source of that data. Are there practical ways in which that or reasonable steps defence could be run in terms of how a user contracts with a data supplier? Will they have to be asking questions about how does the technology actually work? What data is going to be looked at? What data isn't going to be looked at? And how is the company actually going to know what it is that's going into the box in the first place before the decision comes out at the other end? In any contract between, for example, the employer and the third-party company, I think sensible employers will have to insist that there's some impact assessment done on the data, or at least some questions are asked about what the third party is doing to ensure that there are no biases in the data. Now, it's quite hard to prove a negative, but on the other hand, it is quite common for impact assessments to be done. And it may well be that employers say, look, we have required the third party to do that full analysis. And as far as we can reasonably tell, they have taken all practical steps to remove any form of discrimination. Or if there is discrimination, it can be objectively justified. But I think the employer, assuming it is the employer who's relying on the reasonable steps defence, will have to be more proactive than in the past. And it's not good enough to say, well, we just passed it on to a third party and it's their fault. I think they need to be much more conscious they need to be asking difficult questions. There's not much decided litigation on this but this is an issue which does come up in all of these systemic discrimination claims because it's very rare these days to only have sort of one respondent essentially to the litigation who is in fact in control of absolutely everything that's gone and navigating how the law fits with the reality and also sort of looking ahead how to actually draft contracts, manage contracts, manage KPIs to minimise it I think is a really important big money legal question going forwards. Can I ask you now a question that actually we're going to be asking everyone on this series. On a scale of zero to 10, where zero is the most pessimistic about the role of AI going forwards, and 10 is the most optimistic about it, are you able to place yourself with a number on that spectrum and just tell us a little <laughs> bit about kind of why? I know it's a difficult question, really unfair of me to ask. As a good lawyer, you might want to dig a bit more about what you mean by pessimistic. <laughs> the reality is, and I see this in my day-to-day -day world just as an academic and how to examine students, we've just finished the examination season and there are very difficult issues that have risen in respect of use of chat GPT and the equivalent and there will be others that we don't even know about going forward. So at one level, I'm pessimistic and I think it's going to be very bumpy going forward because it's going to cause us to rethink all sorts of things that we have done in a particular way for years. On the other hand, there are opportunities that come with it. And so from that point of view, I'm more optimistic. And I think it's great that there are people like you out there thinking deep thoughts and asking difficult questions, because I think the problem is at the moment, anything to do with AI for most lawyers is in a box marked too difficult and too frightening. And that's not a good place to be. Can I press you on that number? Ah, OK. I'll come out ultimately optimistic. I'll be seven or eight. Excellent. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast. And thank you very much, listeners, for listening. Mm -hmm.